Bird's Eye View is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. BaltimoreSportsReport.com. Welcome to Bird's Eye View. When it comes to the Orioles, this weekly-ish podcast is your official source for a lack of insight and for baseless opinion. Today is November 10th, 2014, and there are only 100 days until pitchers and catchers report to spring training. My name is Jake English, and I'm here with Scott Magnus, who makes this whole thing work. Now, if you're listening to our voice, you're probably either here at Dempsey's Brew Pub, but we'll get to that in a moment. You're finding us on our website, which is birdseyeviewbaltimore.com, or you're finding us at baltimoresportsreport.com slash network, as we are proud members of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. This is episode 100. About time. Well, we say this is episode 100, but this is really episode 100-ish. We're either rounding up or rounding down. I, I can't tell which. It's somewhere in there, there. We've been never known for the num- bingo with numbers. Look, if we had math skills, we would tell you exactly what this is. But you're going to have to take our, our word for it. This is episode 100. Episode 100 of Bird's Eye View is going to be a little special. We mentioned we're recording from Dempsey's Brew Pub at the warehouse at Camden Yards, which should make it interesting and uh, also easy to fill up on a few drinks of the week. So in episode 100, we're going to see return of several Bird's Eye View staples, including... This week on the Twitter, the Brian Roberts Watch, and the good and the bad and the ugly. And we're going to be joined by numerous guests from the Orioles organization who don't know any better than to talk to us about baseball. Now, before we get into some content here, we do want to thank some people who have been involved in making this all possible. First, thanks to Rebecca Parrish and the great staff here at Dempsey's for their amazing hospitality. I also, if I may say, they have a banging uh, uh, happy hour, so make sure that if you are ever looking for a place to be on a weekday between 4 and 7, that you make at Dempsey's. Some great drink specials. I've been enjoying myself. I'm a little bit more lubed up than I normally am at uh, 5 o'clock at night. I find that hard to believe. Uh, next, we want to thank Jeff Lance and the Orioles for making this possible. Uh, we also want to make sure that we recognize Steve Roth of DJ Birdman, who's uh, the unsavory job tonight of trying to make us sound good. If you're looking for a DJ in the local area, give him a call at 301-404-BIRD. That's we'll 301 404 Bird. We'll make sure to have a link in the show notes. Um, also, we want to make sure that we thank Zach Wilt of Baltimore Sports Report uh, for all of his great support. And lastly, uh, we want to thank you, all of you, those of you that are present and listening, and those of you who are listening at home. If you have listened to any of these ridiculous 100 episodes of Bird's Eye View, we thank you. If you listened to us complain about this venture or offered us advice or in any way supported us, and there are so many of you out there who have, thank you. Thank you for making this fun show, this show fun to produce. We, we couldn't do it without you. And with that, Scott Magnus, it's time for us to, uh, to get into something that is important to me. It's important to you. 
What is your drink of the week? Jake, my drink of the week is something that I stole from you. Um, I'm drinking a Heavy Seas Peg Leg Imperial Stout because that, you're too girly to drink it. That's, that's not fair. You did not steal that drink from me. You, you rescued that drink from me and, and, frankly, me from that drink because I am too girly to drink a stout. Uh, I require something a little on the lighter side. Like a Pilsner, a lager, or? Well, right now I'm drinking the House IPA here at Dempsey's, and if my vision was better, I would be able to read it off the tap. But it is the House IPA here at Dempsey's, and that is this week's drink of the week. All right, Jake, why don't we go ahead and go into our weekly segment, This Week on the Twitter, otherwise known as The Twat. All right, let's dive into The Twat, shall we? Uh, first thing we're going to do is we're going to go into a tweet from Pete Kurzel, who uh, tweets, of course, at, at Mass and Pete. And this is something that, that tugs at the heartstrings, Scott. It says, all the Major League Baseball postseason banners are coming down today at Camden Yards. Yes, the offseason has officially arrived. Ugh. I don't know what you're owing about. I took all those banners and put them right into the back of my trunk of my car. I'm very happy right now. Why would they choose the day that we are here recording at Camden Yards to take down all of that postseason gear? Well, if you're going to go to the lowest of low, you might as well have us on. All right. Speaking of the lowest of low, there, there's been some stuff about A-Rod going on this week on the Twitters. I'm not sure if you've keyed into that at all. I've tried to ignore it. The problem was is that I didn't really understand it because I couldn't Google it from work. Uh, because it had a lot to do with peeing on floors. Um, we're going to do Craig Calcaterra here, who tweets at Craig Calcaterra. He writes for Hardball Talk. Thanks. No problem. He tweets as follows. The Cousin Yuri story is interesting only insofar as anyone thinks A-Rod didn't do PEDs and didn't lie about it repeatedly already. Yeah, okay, that's fine, but why are we talking about where A-Rod pees? Look, I think the more important thing comes from pinstripe alley and that's the sb nation yankee blog and it says we live in a world where a rod peeing on his cousin's floor is the top yankees news of the day it's going to be a long off season whenever it's a long off season for the new york yankees fans thumbs up for my for me all right so we're going to get to the podcast uh, portion of the show where we talk about where we pee is that is that what happens no we're going to get and actually talk about some orioles baseball here so um jake rockabaco you can follow him at mass and rock post a list of minor league free agents from best baseball america and that included oliver drake Buck Britton, and Michael Almanzar. Um, hey, wait a second. Didn't we just get Michael Almanzar in a trade? What? If you'll excuse the uh, Seinfeld reference, what's the deal with Michael Almanzar? We just, dude, we, we picked him up from the Rule 5 draft. We thought enough of him to go ahead and trade for him, but we traded for him, and then he's a minor league free agent? Well, did you want to put him on the 40-man roster? Look, that's not my decision to make, but the 40-man well, roster only has like 33 guys on it right now. It's not like we don't have the room. I think you're failing to realize the amount of thrift shop acquisitions that Dan Duquette's going to be making at the winter meetings this year. Look, we'll, t- we'll talk a little bit later about whether or not the Orioles have a big announcement to make. Spoiler alert, they do not. But I don't think that we need to worry about the 40-man roster at this point. Uh, I disagree. We should always be worried about the 40-man roster. All right, can I throw a hissy fit for just a second? Don't you always? Yes. But this is important. This is significant. I feel like we should just expect this person to ride off into the sunset of my heartbreak. Is that fair? Uh, I was thinking more of a total eclipse and uh, with bats flying around him, but go ahead. All right, this is a tweet from Joel Sherman. It tweets at Joel Sherman 1. And it goes as follows. Raul Abanez, who Yankees have interest in as hitting coach, is on preliminary list to interview for Rays manager. What in the name of God are people interviewing Raul Abanez for? This is not appropriate all he does is break my heart in the playoffs 
Actually, it makes perfect sense because he's going to work his dark magic and take Tampa Bay out of that organization and take them up to Montreal so the Montreal Expos can be once again an organization in Canada. So He is full of black magic, and I do not approve. Okay, that's fair. Um, speaking of other foreign nations, uh, Major League Baseball is having a, well, I guess an all-star tour over in Japan. Dan Zabrowski, who posted fan graphs on ESPN, says, I guess MLB's all-star and some guys in the mood to go to Japan roster doesn't have the same ring to it. And uh, as you know, Tommy Hunter is going over to Japan along with some uh, other all-stars like Robinson Cano, Yasiel Puig, yeah, uh, Jeremy talk, Guthrie. Can we talk for a second about this? Is this really a Japan all-star series, or is this a couple of all-stars and whoever else was available to go? It's just about as good as back in the 80s when the World Series champions used to go over to Japan, play a three-game series against some of the Japanese players. So Yeah, but that makes sense. At this point, we're just sending whoever doesn't mind going and a couple of legitimate all-stars. It makes as much amount of sense as, you know, allowing the all-star game to decide who hosts home field advantage during the World Series. All right, can we decide something on this all-star Japan series? All right. I say, great idea. All right. Anytime this, that Yasuo Pui can go over to Japan and show Japanese players how to bat flip, I'm all for it. So what we're going to do is we're going to do the over-under on Yasuo Pui bat flips, and then we'll be all set with that, are we not? Um, that is correct. All right. Now, Scotty, you and I used to have a very uh, important segment of this show. It was something that was consistent it was something we could depend on every week and that of course was something that had to do with a former player of ours we have a moment where we can we can have a big announcement for this particular former segment are you ready you want to do a big announcement oh i do all right let's do this that is right it is time for the Brian Roberts watch. And Scott, this may be the last Brian Roberts watch that we have. <laughs> what significant has happened in the world of Brian Roberts in the last couple of weeks? Brian Roberts has officially announced that he is hanging up his spikes and retiring from the game of baseball. So Diana Roberts is married to a former league, major league baseball player. So Brian Roberts now agrees with the rest of us and the baseball world that he should be retired. Is that what you're telling me? Wow. Um, yeah, I guess there's nobody else that really wants him at this moment. But in all honesty... Ma'am, I'm going to be the only one that will be wooing for Brian Roberts. Thank you. It was a great career, and I fully expect the Orioles to welcome him back this upcoming summer to be entered into the Orioles Hall of Fame. So kudos to Brian Roberts, an amazing Oriole, and honestly, an amazing wife at that, too. So um, Now, yeah. does, does this make you a little sad that this brings to a close the end of the Diana Roberts watch? Oh, absolutely not. When she comes back this summer, I'll be uh, tracking her down and talking to her. That uh, sounds truly frightening for everyone involved. Uh, let's, let's take a, a brief moment. I know that there are a lot of folks that um, don't have as much of the warm and fuzzy as you and I may have for Brian Roberts because of the way that his Oriole career ended. But can we just get real for a second? Brian Roberts is going to come back. As you indicated, he's going to be a member of the Orioles Hall of Fame. He owns as much of a right to being an Oriole Hall of Famer, again, up on the wall above the men's bathroom here at Camden Yards, because of the role that he played in, yes, some terrible clubs. But he was one of the best leadoff hitters, one of the best second basemen of the aughts, was he not? He was, absolutely. He was the team leader for this group. And, yes, there were some really bad years there, but... Brian Roberts is one of the top 10 Orioles of all time, in my opinion. 
Well, Scott, we are here at Dempsey's Brew Pub in the warehouse at Camden Yards doing our very best to pretend that it is not the offseason, doing our very best to pretend that baseball is not over. And as such, what do you say that we, we throw it aside and, and talk to some folks from the Orioles about whatever it is that may be going on? Whoa, whoa, some official people? Well, I mean, they don't know what this podcast is. They, they, don't, they don't know us well enough to stay away. All right, let's get serious. get started with an interview. We have Greg Bader here, who's the Vice President of Communications and Marketing with the Orioles. Uh, thanks first very much for yourself available. You have a lot of that to look forward to, which is really great. <laughs> well, thank you. It's a pleasure. I'm glad to be here. I know I, I uh, am, am one of the uh, few people that are in Baltimore that aren't at the GM meetings out in Arizona, so I'm happy to uh, to be here. I'm sorry it's not going to be as much of a, a baseball-centric uh, transactional discussion as probably you guys would have liked, but happy to be here. You know, you are the uh, the last remaining of our original cavalcade of stars from the Orioles who agreed to show up, and I think it's because a lot of people ended up going to that trip, but I think that's probably only good news for Orioles fans, so we'll uh, we'll take our disappointment and we'll uh, we'll deal with it. So... Let me first start with this. As an Orioles fan, uh, following the Orioles is a lot more fun when the team wins, uh, and I can only imagine that it's a lot easier to speak for the team uh, when they're winning in the 90s rather than in the 60s. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how your efforts are maybe a little boring? Easy? Yeah, it's probably just as easy to, to speak about it. It's, it's the differences that people are now listening so I have no trouble figuring out things to say, but whether you have a receptive audience certainly matters uh, in that 90 versus 60 wins. I mean, clearly we have been trying for many years to, to bring a product that you see today out on the field and, and weren't necessarily successful with that on-field product, which sometimes translated into a lack of interest or lack of commitment, but that really was not the case. It was a lack of success, uh, not a lack of dedication, not a lack of effort. Um, you know, off the field, we feel that even through those years, we were able to keep this ballpark one of the most beautiful in baseball, if not the best in baseball. The fan experience, great. The cost, low. So all of those things that we could control um, on the business end, we tried to um, make as favorable to fans as possible. But, of course, the winning is that kick in the butt, I guess, that, that we're looking for that really gets people um, to decide whether to spend their money with the Orioles and come out and, and spend an evening here. Yeah, and one of the great things about this year was, you know, season packages, you know, exploded during the 2014 season, especially during the playoffs. Um, and the Orioles came out and, you know, announced that 13 game plans were pretty much sold out and that you guys are going to a new plan structure with the 20 game plans as well. 
Um, now, as a 13-game plan owner for multiple years, that had me a little concerned. Um, but should 13-game plan holders be concerned that that's going to be going the way of the dinosaur and that 20-game plans are going to take over? Well, what, what we had to do really in the postseason was cut off the 13-game sales at that point. That didn't necessarily mean a decision had been made that there would no longer be 13 game plans for those who were used to having them and to be able to renew. Um, it, it did cut off new sales, however. Uh, we are still discussing the possibility of adjusting 13 game plans to 20 games. Um, you know, it's, it seems like most teams in baseball have 20 yeah. as that minimum the structure. The Pirates went to that recently. Exactly. Yep. I know the Nationals do something similar. So um, it is. it would be more consistent with what, what baseball does. But historically, going back to Memorial Stadium, people are used to 13 game plans. That's how I became introduced when my father took me yep. to Tag Day in 1987. Um, and I remember it well. And we got an upper deck seat, and it was 13 games. And it's a couple a month. It's not that uh, much of a commitment or a stretch for many families. So it is something we're definitely cognizant of, although we are considering maybe some changes or at least tiering the orange carpet program uh-huh. for more benefits for the more games and, and maybe um, still some, but fewer benefits for those 13 game plan holders. Which again is very similar to what the Pirates and the Nationals have done in the past few years as well. So that makes perfect sense. Um, go ahead, Jake. Uh, next question where is actually uh, directly in line with with that, uh, we talked about uh, a little bit earlier on following some other clubs and, and some of the practices that they have gone to. One of the things that the Orioles have gone to recently is that dynamic pricing, um, which may have had some fans a little uncomfortable when it happened. But now with the year under our belt with that program, does the team feel like that's been a success? Um, is it going to continue? What are, what are our feelings now looking back at it rather than kind of looking at it with, with suspicion? Yeah, we think me? we think it's been a success. I mean, for one, um, you know, there are two two new pricing elements, I guess, that we added this year. There was variable pricing. There was the dynamic pricing. So first taking the variable pricing, just dividing our games up into five different price categories, depending on demand, uh, day of the week, time of year, opponent, um, has actually really helped a lot of families be able to afford to attend more games um, because fewer games uh, are on that real high expensive end. Um, and more games, a uh, majority of the games are, are on what we call classic or value pricing, which is less than they were in 2013. So a majority of games actually decreased in cost. And then to add the dynamic pricing, what that did was really, it actually took away something that a lot of fans had complained about, which was that idea that tickets were more expensive on the day of a game. Um, we heard game day surcharge. That's really not what it was. There was a full price ticket. And then if you bought it 24 hours in advance, or more, you paid a little less. But that was the actual priced ticket was the, was the day of game price. Now, it's a bit of semantics, and some people felt they were getting gouged for making a last-minute decision. What dynamic pricing did was actually allow us to either keep things static, have a slight increase on the day of the game, or in some cases, and in many cases this year, a slight decrease going into the game. If, if the weather turned bad, if the team had lost a few games in a row, if the pitching matchup wasn't looking good, whatever it may be, um, it allowed us to play with the pricing to make it more um, uh, what the market was bearing at the time. So we actually didn't tinker with it a whole lot. Um, you didn't see us implement some very aggressive pricing strategies that some teams like the Giants and others implement. We decided to take a much slower approach and tinker with it, maybe a little less than I think fans had anticipated. Yeah, the one thing that we talked about on our podcast, and uh, well, we come off as a youthful thing, but deep down our heart, we're old fogies and we want to tell you to get off our lawn. Um, <laughs> it's the aspect of going up to the box office and saying, I want to buy tickets and then being surprised by a price. And uh, 
you know, I don't think it, you know, when I went and got tickets at the box office this year, uh, I didn't see a dramatic change. Um, but I think when that first policy came out, people were concerned of, okay, I don't like knowing the unknown. The unknown is scary. But I think it was a pretty good success, like you said, throughout this year. And it wasn't that scary process that we all thought about when it was announced right before FanFest. So, right. Uh, if, if you'd come and, and were expecting uh, to buy a, a bleacher seat and all of a sudden we said it was $45, correct. you might be uh, uh, feeling a little discomfort. Correct. We would never do that. And based on the history of the way we've priced things and the, and the fan-friendly policies we've had from food and beverage, things like that, it was never something that was in danger of happening. But I definitely understand whenever there's a change and it's it does give the power to the Orioles in some cases to, to name our price. Um, we were very careful not to take advantage of, of I guess, that power. Let's just be honest. Baltimore doesn't like change, and they don't like to shake the boat too much. Um, going outside of Baltimore, regional marketing has become really interesting over the past few years with the Nationals only 30 miles south of Baltimore. Um, last year, the Orioles put up a billboard only seven miles away from Nationals Park, which uh, raised a little bit of ire from some of the D.C. sports stations. Um, do you feel like the uh, there's a still a strong market presence in the D.C. area, and there's still the ability for you know the Orioles to pull fans even seven miles away from National Park? Well, that that challenge is is very real. Um, it was something. Uh, it's you, you hate to be right in certain situations, and 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 when we cried from the rooftops that we're going to lose a huge market share, that it's going to damage the ball club financially, um, ticket sales wise, sponsorship wise. Um, Unfortunately, that is, in fact, how it played out, and it was not a surprise to us. Um, we are a regional team. Um, we have been serving the market um, from southern Pennsylvania through uh, North Carolina for many, many years, decades. And uh, when uh, Not to mention putting all that money into that infrastructure as well. That's exactly right. It's, it's, a, it's been a huge um, investment for the club. And, and you know there were a lot of fans, in, in, and there still are a lot of fans throughout that market, Many of whom, though, have gravitated to the Nationals because of the close proximity. Now, we still do... You can call them bandwagon. It's okay. Yeah, we, <laughs> we still do believe a lot of those fans are still coming to Camden Yards maybe two or three times a year. But they used to come six or eight times. And it is a huge dent. Um, so we are being as aggressive as we think is reasonable anyway uh, throughout especially the state of Maryland and into the D.C. suburbs, which are part of the state of Maryland, um, to ensure that we have a presence and we don't, A, abandon those fans and, B, don't miss out on opportunities to create new fans. And with both teams having such success over the last three seasons, it's evident that um, our trajectories are, are, are similar in terms of, uh, in terms of it, fan interest and, and acquisition of new fans. Um, and while we have a larger base of fans to start with, um, we certainly don't want to allow that to, A, whittle away, and, and B, not have the opportunity to expand. Right. And again, that fan base and garnering it and keeping it and preserving it is such a big part. But the other thing that really changed when the Nationals came in was you guys lost a lot of sponsorship and you lost a lot of those small and mid-business, mid-sized businesses that had these season ticket plans. Fortunately, I've been with a company that have had season tickets since, you know, Oriole Park at Camden Yards was created. Um, you know, Losing all that potential business in terms of small market and you know mid market uh, businesses is obviously a huge portion of your season ticket sales as well. Um, how do you guys go about recuperating some of that money in the Baltimore metropolitan area? Yeah, it, it is a challenge, and and nobody fans don't want to hear that. Fans don't want to hear uh, the "woe is me" attitude from the Orioles or the fact that we are a smaller market team than we than we once were, and that we aren't going to have the salaries of the Red Sox and the Yankees. Because, quite frankly, we don't have the market share. Um, you know, there's two teams in an area that's, uh, that's uh, used, to, used to have the, the one team. And much of the dollars, especially corporate dollars, 
but also household dollars are from that Northern Virginia, D.C. area. Um, so uh, that's where much of the revenue and, and much of the, the, the reason the, the, the TV market combined is so strong is because of the D.C. market. Yep. It isn't the Baltimore market. Um, that's not to say that, that, that we aren't thrilled with the support that we do get and the fact that many fans have hung in there and many companies have kept their tickets here uh, in part because of the fact that this is such a draw when they have out-of-town clients being able to take them to Camden Yards still has a huge appeal. So I think in that respect, um, it has been a challenge, um, but it's one that, that we continue to um, you know, uh, strive for, for maximum revenue opportunities, and, and we look for new business. Um, when it comes to the changing role of, of you know, fans, especially when it comes to the media, I feel like the genie's kind of out of the bottle with social media. And even if you look at things like, like this, you know, you have a, a whole faux media uh, that you didn't have to deal with in, in ages past. Um, Major League Baseball, uh, Advanced Media, and Apple recently had a, a snafu with some people who, who do podcasts where they, they shut them off because Major League Baseball wanted to make sure that they were aggressively protecting their trademarks as well as their copyrights. Um, but you kind of have this whole other group of, of folks that you need to communicate with that you didn't really have to deal with originally. It was you know, traditional media, and that kind of filtered through that. How much of a challenge or how much of an opportunity does that present the Orioles in getting their message out there to have more fans engaged uh, and more fans able to to have a voice in, in a way that they didn't previously? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's something that, you know, baseball historically has kind of been like the, like a, a huge steamship uh, in terms of uh, it's uh, the way it's uh, uh, the way it moves. It, it often takes a long time to turn around and, and adapt to change. Um, and in some ways, that's a very good thing. And in some ways, it, it presents some challenges, especially as it trickles down to the clubs. Uh, but you're right. There's a lot of uh, new ways that people get their information. Uh, and the days of taking out a full page ad in, in a local newspaper to get your message across to the overwhelming majority of fans is, is, is are long gone. Uh, so we actually um, really feel that that through social media and, and through other methods that we have a chance to connect with people unfiltered. We want them to hear uh, from us directly. Uh, and we want others speaking about us to as many folks who will listen. I mean, we look at it as a, a positive development and certainly not a negative. Um, the more people and the more um, entities that are out there pushing Orioles baseball or, or at the very least entertaining discussions about it, that's a, that's a huge plus for us. So so from your perspective, guys, it's it's definitely something we welcome and appreciate. Great. Well, I tell you what, we really appreciate you taking a few minutes. Uh, hopefully you'll be able to stop by on your way home and, and all that kind of good stuff for our locale. But uh, again, thank you so much for taking a few minutes uh, to be with us. We really appreciate it. Do you want to take this opportunity right now to, to tell everyone listening anything important from the Orioles going on, major signings that you can announce, anything of that nature? <laughs> Nothing. No, we, we have a couple interesting announcements, but they're not player related. Of course, tonight the, the Sporting News is announcing its executive of the year, and we're hopeful that that Dan Duquette will win that award. Uh, we think he's deserving, so we'll find out that tonight. Sure. And then also, uh, Buck Showalter is up for the Manager of the Year Award, the Baseball Writers Award, tomorrow. Uh, we will find out if he wins. And, and that's uh, something that we feel strongly that he should win as well. So hopefully in the next two days you'll hear those, those uh, positive news announcements, hopefully. Um, and then, of course, you know, it is the hot stove season. We'll be, we'll be hearing from uh, Dan Duquette soon enough. Great. Well, Greg Bader, thank you so much for joining My us. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thanks.
I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade. He'd let us in, knows where we've been in his octopus's garden in the shade. I'd ask my friends to come and see. All right. Uh, first of all, we want to congratulate you on another uh, marathon season of operations at Canyon Yards. And for uh, as much as we like to point out that the season is a grind for the players, uh, we can only imagine that the hours for you and your crew also are are pretty serious. Yes, definitely. Uh, about 14 to 16-hour days sometimes. Which is pretty amazing. I mean, you know, given consideration of you've got a family at home and being able to put 14, 16 hours in every single day for six months, actually even longer than six months because you guys are starting in March. I mean, that's just right. got to be a grind. You know, it's just unreally, unbelievable, really. I mean. And, and I'm sure it doesn't end with the off season either. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about once the season ends, what needs to happen with the, uh, with the facility? Yeah, sure. Um, right now we're just maintaining the field as if we were playing every day. We're cutting almost every day. Uh, fertilizing, spraying any uh, fungicides as needed to get into the winter months. And then in the next few weeks, we're going to be doing some renovating to the baseball field, um, you know, resodding any issue, issued areas that, you know, went through a little bit of wear and tear that will not grow back over the winter. So we're going to be resodding that next, uh, next Monday, actually. Are there any behaviors of players that maybe contribute to that? Do you have like a hit list of players that maybe don't take quite as good care of the field as you'd like? <laughs> no, um, you know, whatever makes them feel comfortable out there on the field to play every day, they're the greatest way that they can. Um, you know, we'll sacrifice the time in order for a win, so it's not a problem. That was a very politic answer. Very nice we'll answer. It. Greg Bader would be very happy. <laughs> All right, I want to ask you a question um, about a change that was made in 2013, and it's regarding the warning track. You guys got away from the rubberized yeah. warning tracks and went to the natural crushed stone surface, uh, which was the Duratrax Professional. Can you tell us how that process goes about from infancy to installation? And well, after two years of service, do you approve of its performance at the time, or do you want to bring back the rubber mats? Oh, no, I do not want to see that rubber mat ever again at Camden Yards <laughs> if, uh, if we can help it. Um, I think it's great for a playability standpoint. I think the players wouldn't have an issue diving on the warning track that we have now as opposed to the rubberized surface um, to make a great play out in the outfield. Um, you know, we started putting that track in last or April or March of actually 2013, and it was a process that took a long time, um, about a month and a half uh, for completion. So it was... Um, Definitely well worth it, though, because I think we played great on it this year and, well, for the part of last year as well. All right. Um, it seems to me like you've got one of those jobs where it, it only gets noticed or put on television when something goes wrong, and that's got to be really difficult. There are some uh, well-publicized incidents in, in this past season with grounds crews across Major League Baseball, most notably with Chicago Cubs and the New York Yankees. Um, were there any issues that you guys had this year that you could point to where just the tarp wouldn't wouldn't cooperate, or there was another challenge that maybe didn't uh, catch the eye of the the average average everyday viewer that you can tell us about. 
Yeah, I think it was a game um, July 2nd we were playing, and it was a heavy rainstorm prior to the game, and the tarp was soaked from that. And then during the game, more rain came back in, and, uh, you know, trying to put the tarp on when it's already saturated, and then you're dealing with an already wet surface, um, it got stuck halfway through on the infield, but we were able to fortunately get it completely on the field without ruining the surface. Um, you know, what happened with the Cubs and with the New York Yankees, um, it, it can happen to anybody. So I don't think it was anything due to the ground crew um, not being able to deploy the tarp in a, ma- in a matter of time. But, you know, just so much rain at, you know, any given minute can really slow things down. Well, you guys are also at the mercy of not being able to control when play actually stops. Right. Right. So our job is to just update the umpire crew chief, um, you know, as much as we can, depending on what weather is coming into the ballpark. And, you know, you can you can read a radar all day long about intensity of the rainfall, but, you know, you really don't know until it happens. Um, so it could look like it would be a light system moving through, and then all of a sudden a complete deluge would happen. And you just got to be ready to attack as you know, as much as possible or as fast as possible to make sure that surface is good. All right, I want to go back to a more happy time, and that's when the Orioles clinched the AL East this year. And during that game, yeah. Adam Jones came out to right field when he was doing his victory as a lap celebration and came out and celebrated with the grounds crew. Uh, for those of us that were watching both on TV and in the park, it was a pretty special moment for us, but it had to be really special for the grounds crew. Can you describe that and just tell us what you thought about that that given situation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the, play, the team played so hard, you know, trying to get into the playoffs. And when we clinched at home, which was something that hasn't happened there for a long time, I think everybody was just really excited about it. And we were just standing out there just, like every other fan was and just clapping and enjoying the time. And, you know, when Adam came around and, and thanked all of us in that circle, it was, it was pretty special, especially for the guys on the crew that work hard every single day. It just shows that your work is rewarded. Now, how hard is it to get pie off the grass? <laughs> the pie actually, um, you know, it's a, it's a great thing that we do at Camden Yards, although like when it hits the grass blade, it becomes really greasy and can kill the grass. Uh, but, you know, we try to just uh, sweep it off as soon as possible and put a little bit of water on it, and the next day it should be fine. So, so David Lowe was right when he said it was poison. Gotcha. Yes. <laughs> now the truth it comes be, out. It, it tastes fabulous, but not for grass. I want to ask one more question, then we'll let Nicole get back to the sick child. And uh, it's a topic from the past again, and I want to talk about um, a memory that I had, which is the Ivy in center field. And it was moved back in 2011, much to the screen of you and the fans. But obviously, you know, it just couldn't survive any longer. Um, But we did notice the next year after that, the center field bar was installed above it. Is there any possibility of the Ivy ever being put back into center field or anything being planned in that area again? past the center field bar that is right above it? Well, it's going to be hard to put any other type of, um, you know, plant out there. Ivy does very well in shade and cooler temperatures. Um, the, uh, the ivy growing on that batter's eye wall was sometimes in 190-degree heat um, for 14 hours a day. So you Plants normally don't do very well with that. that it didn't. No, it wouldn't. And, you know, having a batter's eye, it needs to be a continuous, um, solid surface. So any other planning, whether it was, um, you know, a different type of ivy, uh, 
Sometimes ivy can get fall colors, which if we make it into the postseason, that's not going to be acceptable for, you know, the batter's eye surface. So um, not at this time. We're not planning on anything, but definitely a possibility in the future if uh, ownership would like to do that. It shall remain a faint whisper in my memories, but I appreciate it nonetheless. <laughs> now, you say yeah. if we have to prepare for the playoffs again, I, I, I can only imagine that preparing the field for playoff baseball has got to be a lot of fun after uh, not quite having that opportunity for some time. Right. Oh, it was it was great. I mean, we were all excited. We couldn't wait for the team to get back in town after that final Boston series at home. Um, and we just worked hard trying to maintain the best surface that we could. And, you know, I hope to see more of it in the future. And I think we have a young team and a great team that's going to provide that for us in the future. So we're excited about it. Now, is it a little different uh, preparing the field when the team clinches and you know you're going to be in the playoffs versus something like 2012 when you have to see them go play in the uh, wild card game and, and kind of wonder? <laughs> I think that was a little bit more stressful when they were in uh, Texas playing that wild card game. Um, you know, because you never know, and you just hope that you have the surface as ready as possible. Um, you know, with a week and a half off from any home games when we clinched this year, uh, it was a little bit easier to prepare and fine-tune and make sure that everything is as perfect as possible. All right, well, Nicole, we're going to let you get back to the family. We surely appreciate you coming on and talking with us, and, um, you know, best of luck this offseason. Again, best of luck for 2015. Uh Try to get some rest uh, in these uh, times where you're not working 14 to 16 hours a day. Absolutely. We will do that. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks. Nicole. All right. Bye. I'm looking through you. Where did you go? All right, well, again, we have Adam Gladstone, the Orioles replay coordinator. We're, we're really delighted to hear from you. Replay is, is new to baseball. It's new to baseball fans, and we're pretty excited to hear uh, your take on it because, obviously, you're right in the thick of things. A um, <laughs> couple, of, couple of questions because we're dumb and we just don't understand what it is that you do. Um, you, your office is, is basically right there off the dugout, correct? So you are, are right there in the thick of things just waiting at any moment to, uh, to be called into service. Is that correct? Yeah, that's pretty much uh, exactly how it plays out. Um, Baltimore, here in Baltimore, and when we're in uh, New York at Yankee Stadium, those are the two places where the uh, replay setup is very similar in terms of location. Every other ballpark that we that we go to, most of the time the video replay system is set up in the middle of the clubhouse. So here in Baltimore, um, what happens is a play occurs on the field, and as soon as Buck leaves the dugout, John Russell, our bench coach, comes down. And, and by that point, I have the play up on the video screen uh, to the point of we pretty much know 
which direction we think we want to go in. Uh, I give my opinion. JR gives his opinion. And then JR goes out and gives Buck a signal as to, hey, yes, we should definitely challenge this. It's clear and concise that the umpires missed the call. Uh, we definitely shouldn't challenge it because the umpires got it right. Or, you know what, this could go either way. So, you know, Buck, uh, that's, the, that's the information that we have. Whatever, obviously, all the decisions are Buck's decisions, but sometimes it's up to Buck as to what he wants to do because the, the video evidence is not conclusive. You know, going back to my comment about being dumb and not really understanding what it is you do, I, until this very moment, I did not consider the fact that you have to travel with the team. Is there a little bit of gamesmanship in the fact of like the uh, the arrangements that you have to deal with in visiting cities, or is there like a standard across Major League Baseball that uh, that teams have to uh, apply as far as what's made available to you? Well, first of all, Major League Baseball provides a consistent video system for every ballpark, home and away. And so every visiting ballpark that we go into, we have a computer with the Hawkeye system, and we have two MLB-provided video monitors so that it's consistent everywhere we go. Obviously, Yankee Stadium has a nice setup because it's similar to our setup, even though when the Yankees come into town, they don't have a setup right off the dugout. They're actually up in the clubhouse. So, you know, for the most part, um, all the other major league clubs found a convenient place to put the replay system. Uh, some were certainly a little bit interesting. I mean, in Chicago, when we were playing the White Sox, uh, if I walked two, two steps further, I'd be in the showers. Um, if, you know, in Seattle, we're back uh, almost to the entrance of the clubhouse, um, but for the most part, when we were in Kansas City for the ALCS, uh, and obviously during the regular season, we were right in the middle of the clubhouse. And, and really, that's very similar. Fenway Park, right in the middle of the clubhouse. Uh, Wrigley Field, believe it or not, even though the clubhouse itself is up on the concourse, above the concourse, actually, there's a separate video room. And some of the times, I'd probably say 50% of the time, I'm sharing a room with Ben Worthen and Mike Silverman, who handle a lot of the video scout advance work for the club. All right, let me ask you this question. Um, you know, we're talking about a standardized, you know, system, but do you have any ability to tweak or coordinate with like Masson and the camera crews on site to set up different angles that you might want to approach for a, a given viewpoint in the future? Or is it just, this is what you get and you better be happy with it? Well, what happens is, the home club, obviously for us, it's Masson, and we'll take the Yankees and, and the Yes Network. Uh, when we're here in Baltimore and when we go to New York, both Masson and Yes provide their signals. At that point, Major League Baseball in New York determines which camera angles they're going to take. So they take a look and see that they see all the camera angles that the uh, production crews can provide. And then from that point on, before the game starts, it's up to... MLB to determine which camera angles are going to go with. Now, we've certainly made some suggestions, and needless to say, working here with, with Don and the Masson crew uh, has been phenomenal. One of the things that we do a little bit differently from other clubs is, even though we have both video monitors up, Masson, 162 games, uh, home and away, also provides me with a separate monitor of a live program feed. And even though I can put that live program feed up on one of my 16 screens on the video boards, it still allows me the opportunity to watch the game live. 
and then everything else that on the video side of things is one second delayed. And, and what that does is it helps us in we watch a play happen live. We see that there's a situation that's occurred that maybe, hey, we got to take a look at this. And then I can trans- transition from the live video monitor that Masson provides to the video screens of the Hawkeye system, which is one second behind, and then stop the play, reverse it if we need to, or fast forward it to get us to the point that we need to make a decision. What about a game that's on uh, ESPN or Fox? <laughs> it's a great question. Um, we, we, we tend to dread those games because the camera angles are different. <laughs> so do we, but for a completely different reason. Go ahead. Uh, we, we tend, you know, we, unfortunately we're at the mercy of, of the new camera guys and, and cameramen and women that are shooting the game. So their angles are a lot different. And a lot of times, you know, f- for us, one of the best angles is the tight center field angle looking in at the pitcher over the pitcher's shoulder and, and into the home plate area. A lot of times what will happen is the live program feed for these national televised games, for some reason, they love to come from behind the umpire and behind the catcher, and it really gives you no look. Now, it's, it's pretty cool for the fans to see what it's like in terms of the trajectory of the pitches, but for us that are trying to figure out, hey, did that, you know, where did the pitch cross in the zone, even though that's not something that's reviewable, Hey, did that guy, did the batter get hit by the ball? Did it hit the bat? Those kind of things, which makes it a little bit difficult. And then you have to transition and take a look at some of the other camera angles to adjust to those um, tough right. camera angles is the best way to say it. I, I got to be honest. I'd rather you have a better look than us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah Adam, let no, me ask you this question. We've got one go of ahead. our listeners here that asked the question of whether we could be, whether Major League Baseball could be installing remote controlled cameras to get better angles. I know that was something that was discussed during the playoffs, but is that something that could possibly come in, in the next year or two for Major League Baseball, especially with the introduction of StatCast through MLB Advanced Media? You know, it's a, it's a great question, and, and I have no idea. Um, one of the things that, that Buck talked to me about very early in spring training was, hey, listen, this is going to be a work in progress. And what we see happen in the beginning of the season may change uh, towards the end of the season. And we saw that with the transfer rule at second base about two months into the season. So um, going back to the camera angles, I'm not sure how that would play in. Certainly that's going to be a decision that Major League Baseball advanced media the commissioner's office, as well as the umpires. Let's, you know, let's not forget that everything that happens with replay has to be approved by the umpires, and it's a huge negotiation. So I do think that there will be more things that will be allowed to be reviewed, um, and I'm certainly certain that those things will be discussed, you know, probably beginning today at the general manager's meetings and then transitioning excuse me, into the um, winter meetings in December. You know, that transfer rule thing was, uh, we'll call it interesting. It was interesting that the rule was changed and then changed again midway through the season. Um, are there any rules uh, in the game presently that you think are the most challenging for replay officials and for teams to deal with through the replay process that you think are more likely to be addressed in a similar fashion so that baseball doesn't get into a situation like it did with the transfer rule where they have to make a competitive change during the season? Um, you know, I think from, from you know, after finishing a year and seeing all types of calls being made, right, wrong, or indifferent, I would say that, you know, for me, some of the toughest calls or to determine were hit by pitch. Now, I don't know how they, could, how they can change that. 
Um, but hit by pitch was really tough because you're really looking at a side angle for the most part. And then unless you have an XMO or a super slow-mo, it's really tough to be able to see if the ball deflects off the bat or deflects off a hand or deflects off a, a piece of uh, uniform when the ball doesn't change direction. And a lot of times umpires are making that call based on sound and not just vision. So, I mean, for me, that's pretty tough. One of the things I thought was pretty interesting was uh, plays, you know, the simple play at first base. When does the, when does the first baseman have possession of the baseball? And that, that rule kind of changed on us a little bit where originally we were told once the ball hits the back of the glove, that's when you determine that the ball is in the mitt. Now, the funny thing is, from being a former umpire, a lot of times that call is made once again by sound. So if that call goes to review in New York, how is the guy in New York going to be able to determine through sound that the ball actually hit the back of the mitt? And it was something that Buck and I had a conversation with, with some umpires early in the season, and what they said was as soon as the ball hits the leather, any part of the leather is determined that the ball is in the glove. And, and they tried to put it into a simple scenario for us in that, hey, runner on third, less than two outs, fly ball hit to the outfield, when can that runner on third leave? And it's as soon as the ball hits the glove of the outfielder. So they took that and they instituted that at first base as well. You know, I'm really glad that you used the word sound because that's actually where I was leading with my next question. So, so thanks for the, the clear transition. I appreciate that. Um, sure. But uh, yeah, I've heard a lot of people say that you can basically be a first base umpire as long as you can hear. You can close your eyes and do most of the, the work by sound. Uh, we've, we've had so many developments with baseball broadcasts using sound, miking up players, miking up parts of the field, such as the bags. Do you think that it'll become a standard practice for Major League Baseball stadiums to have a mic at or near the bag so that the replay officials and the officials in New York will have that sound available to them as well to help, help, uh, help them make that determination at, at, the ba- at the bags as far as who got there first? It's a great question. I certainly think it could be used uh, advantageously. I think it all boils down to the finances. And, and let's not forget, Major League Baseball put $30 million in, into the instant replay system. So the instant replay system's not going anywhere. It's only going to expand. And, and that may be an area that they talk about um, in trying to help find another way to, to ultimately get the calls right. And I think for the most part, something we haven't talked about yet is the fact that what this has done is it allows everybody to leave the ballpark for the most part, knowing that a game won't end on an umpire's decision that will have clear and concise evidence as to why a game ending call for the most part was called in the fashion that it was. Yeah. We don't know anything about games ending uh, on controversy here in Baltimore. So, um, <laughs> Let me ask you this question in regards to plays and how plays are called. You guys had about a 50%. uh, Well, we could take it as a glass half filled or glass half empty. You guys hit 50% of the time this year. Um, What correspondence do you have with that group over in New York from MLB Advanced Media and the umpires that are there after calls are made in game saying, hey, why was that call not overturned? Um, and do you guys get verification of the calls and why it wasn't that? Or are you guys going to sit down this off season and discuss that kind of policy slash review system at all and just kind of do a review of how the situation is supposed to go into 2015? Well, first of all, I'll go back to the numbers in that, yes, uh, we challenged 28 calls this year. 14 of those calls got overturned. 
but an additional nine of those calls came back as we're not going to say you guys are right, but we're also not going to say that the umpire was correct. So the way that Buck and I and JR looked at that was, well, if you can't tell us that the umpire was correct in his call, then it was right for us to challenge that. Yeah, Buck so, would say a, a paranoid man would have an opinion on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys have worked with Buck before. So one of the things that, that we do as often as we can is if there is a decision made in New York, we certainly wait for a cooling off period because, look, in the heat of battle, everybody gets frustrated and everybody certainly on our side, wants to put the Orioles in a position to be successful. So um, we do have the ability, and, and I've done it quite a few times this year, where I've talked with uh, not the umpires that have called, who have made the calls, but actually Justin Clem, who's the head of the replay system. And, and it happens that Justin and I, um, when I went to umpire school, Justin was one of my instructors in umpire school. So the, the relationship it was already established. There was no benefit to us having a previous relationship but it just allowed us the ability to have a question and to have some dialogue and to say hey look we saw it this way what did you guys see differently so that we can learn from this so that happened continuously throughout the year in an effort for us to get better all right you're at a bit of a disadvantage here because i'm going to put you in the middle of an argument my co-host and i have a discussion every week about do the numbers matter? Does your baseball gut matter? You know, how do you, how do you make the two marry up? So I'm going to put you in the middle, and I'm going to ask you a very pointed question. You know, you've talked in interviews about how it's your job for a challenge um, to, to make sure that you make a case that is clear and concise. I'd like to ask you, is there any point uh, during the season when Buck Showalter called for a replay based on his gut instead of having that clear and concise argument for a, a challenge should be made. Absolutely. Of course. And a lot of that has to do with because Buck is in the dugout and he sees that play happen. And to the naked eye, he, you know, he sees it one way. I have the ability to kind of be distanced from the heat of action, I guess is the best way to say it, and to be able to look at it constructively. And one of the things that, that Buck talked to me about in spring training was, hey, listen, we're all here to support the Orioles. Your job is to make sure that the information that you give me, you know, either with JR, because when we're on the road, JR's obviously not, doesn't have the ability to come take a look. It's all through the phone. I need to be as objective as possible. It does not benefit the Orioles organization for me to say, hey, look, Buck, yes, you know, Jonathan Scope made that tag and the guy was out when he wasn't. So I'm looking at it from an umpire's point of view in New York of saying, okay, look, I've now taken a look at all 16 camera angles. I don't see one here that's going to overturn the call that's being made. So it, 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 that's really the focus and the direction that we make. But there's been many times. I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. We were in, when we were in Detroit for game three of the ALDS, and if you remember in the second inning, I think it was Don Kelly hit a ground ball to scope at second base with a runner on third, and he tried to beat it a bunt, tried to a bunt base hit. Uh, scope got the ball with his glove, underhanded toss to first base. Jim Wolf, the umpire, called the runner out. Well, that's a third out, so the run doesn't score. Brad Osmus comes out and challenges the play, and, and anytime the opposing manager challenges a play, Buck's also either in my office or talking to me, calling me saying, what do you got so he can be prepared for the next step of the game? And Buck said, hey, what do you got? And I said, Buck, I said, they called him out. 
if they had called him safe, I think he would have been safe. So he said to me, he said, Adam, if this was us, what would you suggest we do in this situation? And I said, Buck, as close as that play was, I don't see any clear and concise evidence to overturn the call. And luckily, 30 seconds later, they came back and they, they stayed with the call. So, I mean, at least we're able to look at those things. And, and those are the tough ones because there were a couple of times during the year where we thought we saw something clear and concise and the umpires in New York didn't see it that way. And, and look, for the first year of, of this being instituted in Major League Baseball, um, you're not surprised by that. And as Buck said, we're going to evolve with the situation and see where it takes us. Well, Adam, this, the insight that you bring is amazing because, again, we, that's, this is a part of the game that, that is new to fans, and it's something that we're all going to have to get used to is being a part of baseball. You know, the, the replay is something that we're all immediately familiar with when it comes to football. You know, we see a play that we don't like, and we know, is this something we're going to challenge? Is this something we're not going to challenge? I, f- I feel like we're, we're learning that with baseball, and not only are we learning uh, which plays can and cannot be challenged, but we're also kind of learning along with the seasons as they go on with, you know, a little bit of the finer points of, of the rules of baseball. So we really do appreciate your, your perspective. Um, if I could just make a request, try to make sure that we get a few more of those uh, replays uh, challenges next year. <laughs> would, you, would you do that for us? See if we see if we can get them right. Yeah, yeah. No, no, not yeah. right. I mean, called in our favor. That's really the important thing. Send a fruit basket to New York and make it happen. We're not yeah, asking no, we're, questions. We're, we're going to try. We're, we're always going to try. And, and the good thing is, is that we're going to always try and do what's best for for obviously the on field situation at that time. And and ultimately, um, Buck's pretty good at understanding what needs to be done in that moment. So um, you know, we we got through the first year. Um, Look, replay helped us, you know, a couple times. Um, I don't think it really – well, it may have cost us one game, if you guys remember uh, the play we, earlier. We choose not to remember that. And Rajay Davis stole second base, and he was called out, and then they overturned it. Um, you know, we, we live and we learn with that kind of stuff, and we have some dialogue, and Buck's going to make sure that the Orioles use the instant replay system in the best possible way to help the club. All right. Well, Adam Gladstone, replay coordinator for the Baltimore Orioles. Thanks so much for joining us here at Birds of You. And again, best of luck for next season. And just know, next year, when you are making those calls and making those recommendations to JR and to Buck Walter, you are the most popular person in the building when those calls are right. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, thanks very Adam. much. Well, Scott, it's that time. It is that time for a review of the 2014 season. And what better way to do it when it comes to bird's eye view than to have a, a, a nice little good, bad, and ugly. The good and the bad and the ugly segment is basically where we take what makes us proud to be Orioles fans, what makes us ashamed to be Orioles fans, and then anything that's worse than that, and we break it down. Uh, to join us here in this particular segment, we've got Zach Wilt from Baltimore Sports Report. Uh, who, in addition to running the Baltimore Sports Report website, is a uh, host of the 
uh, BSR podcast. Zach is going to clean up all the spots that we miss for the good and bad and the ugly. Scott, how do you want to do this? You, you want to go first? You want me to go first? I know that you like to rant and rave when it comes to the good and the bad and the ugly. Well, I'm going to start first so we can actually get some traction towards this discussion, and then, then I'll finish up. Um, Jake, I'm going to start with my good for the year, um, and that's got to be Steve Pierce, who's the obvious feel-good story of the season. He's a player that's been on and off the team since 2012 and was finally given the chance to have significant playing time, and he proceeds by being one of the best players on the team with multiple months of 150-plus weighted runs created plus. Uh, for those of us that like to look at more simplistic stats, he put us at a 373 on base percentage, a 556 slugging, a 929 OPS, and only 383 plate appearances. He posted a 4.9 war in those brief plate appearances, second on the team, only behind Adam Jones, um, and actually was first on the team in terms of baseball references war st- category. So in addition, you know, next year he's projected as being at least a three plus war player, which again just shows that. The future is bright for Steve Pierce. He's going to be a great addition to this team in 2015. I have nothing to, to say beyond that except why did you have to go war? Sorry. What is it good for? All right. My, my good uh, for this season is got to be, you know, I'm going to try to avoid chalk. My good for this season is going to be Zach Britton. Zach Britton went from being a spare part who, who might have been designated into being an indispensable bullpen component. Look, you and I both love Jim Johnson, but it's safe to say that his lack of stability hurt the Orioles big time as they faded down the stretch in 2013. Zach Britton showed chinks in the armor occasionally, but more often than not, he was a dominant closer, using a single pitch to mow down opponents who knew it was coming. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's not just a single pitch. It's a 96-mile-per-hour sinker. It was a single pitch. It doesn't matter. It's a 96-mile-per-hour sinker. I want to come back to that. Okay. Will you put a pin in that? I'll put a pin in it. All right, so he used that one pitch. Now, who knows if he can build upon his successes in 2014 moving forward, but for this past season, he was part of the good. Now, you brought up a great point. Is it one good pitch versus and one excellent pitch? We have a, a, a closer, Mariano Rivera, who's going to be in the Hall of Fame because he had that one good pitch. My question to you is, is that one good pitch, that 97 and 98 mile an hour sinker, going to be enough now that there's a lot of video on him available to other teams? Or is he going to need to adapt and, and uh, provide some, uh, some other looks in order to remain a dominant closer in 2015? I'm sorry, Jake. When your pitch drops three to four inches in vertical movements, you're just going to be putting the ball on the ground no matter how you adjust to it. So as long as his pitch placement is correct and he's getting that vertical drop, Zach Britton's going to be as dominant as he was the previous season. All right, you and I have gotten a lot of flack because when we do the good, the bad, and the ugly, we do good and bad and then ugly, and the bad and ugly outweigh the good. So we're going we're gonna to break from tradition. We're going to provide two goods. What do you got? Well, do I really want to talk here, or do we want to get our guest on? We want to get Zach on to talk, don't we? All right, so we've got Zach Wilt from Baltimore talking. Sports Report <laughs> Network. Zach, what do you have as far as a good for this can, season? Can I give you a good moment? That's something fine. That, something that just, we don't have rules here. It's it's stuck we have in standards. my brain, and and just being here back at Camden Yards, it it totally reminds me of this moment, uh, and that has nothing to do with the ALCS. But uh, back to the division series, Delman Young clearing the bases with uh, a, a pinch hit double in game two of the ALDS was probably the coolest moment as an Oriole fan that I've ever seen yeah. sitting in the stands. And I will just remember it for the rest of my life and, and it will never uh, get out of my brain. I don't think I'll ever be able to come here to Camden Yards without thinking about that moment. So you're saying that 
at the beginning of the season, you said to yourself, when you walked in the, into the ballpark, you said, you know what? Delman Young's going to have that memorable moment for me as an Orioles fan that I'll remember for the rest <laughs> of my exactly, life. Exactly, exactly. It started in the spring training, really. right? Right, exactly. That is exactly what you expected from Delman Young <laughs> when the Orioles signed him, was it not? Absolutely, yeah. It was. It, it had nothing to do with the fact that uh, I was feeling doom and, and gloom about how little they had done the, in the off season. But, you know, uh, it's funny because we we talked about a little bit about this on the episode that followed that event. I, I had a really bad day that day leading into my arrival at the ballpark, and that just wiped it all clean. I, I feel like Delman Young's double to to bring the winning runs in kind of wiped a lot of people's slates clean as far as following the Orioles. You said it's the best thing you've ever seen while you've been here. I think that's probably the case for a lot of people. Well, well to put it in perspective, the Orioles had a 6% chance of winning that game right before Delman Young came to the plate. After Delman Young came to the plate... The Orioles' chances were 67% to win that game. So Delman Young's win probability added was over 60% just for one hit. How much of that had to do with Delman, and how much of it had to do with the pitching uh, matchup that the Orioles were facing that inning? It didn't matter anything curiosity. because the person, you already had one out that happened in that inning. Right. So it wasn't like it was completely, you know, we had already had an out. So, you know, Delman Young getting that clutch hit and putting it exactly where it was. And again... The biggest thing for me is J.J. Hardy scored from first base on that play. That was amazing. <laughs> the slide. The slide is just and, ingrained and, in my head. And, and, Zach, if you actually took a look at the stat cast, they had J.J. Hardy's speed at being right around 20 miles per hour, which allegedly was the same speed that Alex Gordon was putting on that game. I have a hard time believing that Alex Gordon and J.J. Hardy were putting out the same speed. <laughs> well, there's a thing that always happens, and it's the combination of J.J. Hardy and uh, Dickerson uh, being the third base coach. He always waves in J.J. Hardy. J.J. Hardy never gets held at third base. Am I making that up? It doesn't seem like it. Well, no, they just I have, can't they, they got some relationship where they're just like, no, no, no. J.J. Hardy's got speed. But okay? the, the windmill always comes through with J.J. Hardy. I, I heard my voice over in uh, Section 78 just, just leave when I was screaming so loud for Delman Young. I literally could feel myself losing my voice at that moment. You know, there's try, a, try to stay hydrated next time, Zach, okay? That, that, <laughs> that can help. There's this really cool video of uh, some people that are in one of the hotels nearby watching the stadium at that moment, and the sound, there's just a sheer sound from Camden Yards that, that crept out into the surrounding neighborhood. It's, it, it's got to be one of the most exciting moments here at Camden Yards. Uh, so, yeah, as far as good, I, I guess, you know, that's an okay there choice. Go. Good moment. All right, I'm going to go with another good moment that will happen this year, and that was the 60th anniversary celebration at Oriole Park in Camden Yards. The Orioles celebrated their 60th anniversary of their franchise moving to Baltimore in a grand fashion. 23 Orioles Hall of Famers, including five members of the National Baseball Hall of Fame, were present to be recognized for their roles in the franchise storied history. And in the end, the crowd was asked to welcome the first-place Baltimore Orioles back into the field to you know, meet greatness of Orioles in the past and this present revitalization. And just the images that were broadcast on the screens, the images that were broadcast directly onto the warehouse, it was a truly remarkable display of, you know, it's one of the best things I've ever seen the Orioles do right up there with Cal Ripken breaking 2130 and 2131. The Orioles knocked it out of the park in terms of a promotion and marketing aspect on that. So they should be, you know, they should look back at that night and say, that's something we want to try to top each and every year. Yeah, and this is actually a game that you should go back to if you're feeling badly about the way this season ended because, you know, we've talked about this on a previous episode. The fact that you go through all that history, the Orioles used to be a good club year in and year out, and it took them a couple of tries to get 
to that point in which they won their first World Series. And it takes a couple near misses to get there. And and that's really the only thing that kind of pulled me back off the ledge after the Orioles lost that ALCS series. I, I thought that 60th anniversary uh, game and ceremony that followed was really an amazing moment for fans of now, fans from a, a bygone era. It was a, it was a great night. And, and, I was there, and I was there with you, so that was special too. And, and bravo to Masson, by the way, for not only posting highlights of that, but the full 45-ish minute ceremony you can go back and watch, which I have multiple times. Yep. Yeah, well, you know, it was important for them to do that rather than cutting away straight to replays of bull riding. <laughs> but again, Zach is right. They did take the entire thing and also put it onto the internet too on YouTube as well. Yeah. So in case you did not catch it that night or got too late, you could always come back the next day and be like, hey, I want to rewatch this. So again, that's a good pick-me-up video to watch during the winter time when it gets especially bleak and dark outside. Polar vortex. Yes. All right, Scott, I've got one more good for you, but I feel like we're going to have a difference of opinion here. All right, go ahead. I, I need you to hear me out on this. My good is going to be, and I'm going to go out on a limb here, my good for 2014 in review was starting pitching. Look, the starting pitching, even with a notable exception that we'll probably get into in a moment, was a very pleasant surprise for the Orioles. The rotation turned out to be five guys who weren't spectacular, but were overall very strong. You know, there was no ace. There was no Scherzer or Shields type of guy, no standout. Instead, they quietly, very quietly, I would say, put together a season that allowed them to win 96 games. Now, the Orioles starters were ranked in the lower third of the league as far as innings pitched were concerned. They were 12th in ERA. They were up near the top of the league in walks and down near the bottom in strikeouts. They outperformed their FIP and all those other fancy stats you've got. I cannot find a single stat that helps me tell the story that they were a dominant staff. And yet I have full confidence going into 2015 with a staff that, can, that uh, has Chris Tillman, Bud Norris, Wei Yin Chen, Miguel Gonzalez, and Kevin Gosman. You're missing somebody. No, no, no. We'll get there in a second. <laughs> I think it's a solid rotation, if not spectacular, and one that I think will also pleasantly surprise Orioles fans yet again in 2015. What, what, what wet blanket do you have for me, sir? Well, the wet blanket that I'll throw on you is one of the things that people mentioned that might be the possibility of why they improved so much was actually Caleb Joseph behind the plate. Caleb Joseph did an amazing job in terms of pitch framing during the second portion of the season. Um, so, yes, it'll be interesting to see if this team can perform equally as well as they did um, in the second half of the season, which, again, they were one of the top five pitching rotations in baseball at that time. But you have Matt Weiders coming back. He's not as good as a, as a pitch framer as Caleb Joseph. He's a better defensive uh, catcher, I think, than Caleb Joseph. But again, from a framing aspect, he's not quite as good. I, again, again, I have to point out, Jake, that you missed one name specifically in that rotation that's going to have to be in that rotation. And, um, well, Jake, does that lead you to your bad? All right, fine. We'll do this. <laughs> we'll do this if that's what you really want to do. We will go into the bad of the good and the bad and the ugly. And my bad for the 2014 season, yes, my bad was Ibaldo Jimenez. This is a guy that was brought in on the largest free agent contract for a starting pitcher in franchise history. You know, Peter Angelos finally unshackled his wallet and was rewarded with uh, a simply terrible season. Abaldo Jimenez's greatest contribution to this team was getting hurt at the right time so that more capable starters could lead the Orioles to the playoffs. 
relegated the bullpen. He was left off the ALCS roster. And major question marks remain about Hibaldo Jimenez, not only for 2015, but for the rest of that contract to follow. Yes, for 2015 or for 2014, Hibaldo Jimenez is my bad. He also didn't travel with the team during the ALCS, too, which is interesting. What, because it doesn't give you warm and fuzzy? Well, again, I think it's interesting that a bunch of other players traveled with the team and he decided not to. I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a terrible thing, actually, that he didn't travel with the team. I mean, take a look at Matt Wieters, for example. Matt Wieters was sidelined for a majority of the season, but still did a ton of scouting for the Orioles and a ton of mentorship Brian for Brian Mattis, who wasn't on the roster in the Vision Series, traveled to Detroit. That's correct. So, D- Does Brian Mattis or Matt Wieters have anywhere near the black cloud of, of peril that, that seems to cover Obaldo Jimenez? Brian Mattis does. Yeah, Mattis probably does. <laughs> All right, I... I will give that one up. Uh, Zach, what's your bad for this for this year? Uh, it, it's hard for me to shy away from Chris Davis' this season, and uh, a lot of that has to do with the suspension at the end of the year. I mean, uh, underperforming or, or not living up to the expectations after just setting the world on fire the previous year and hitting everything out of the ballpark that was thrown to him. Uh, it, it's hard for me to, to not put him in that bad category. All right, well, the other bad that I want to touch on is the injuries that galore that happened to the perennial All-Stars, such as Manny Machado, Matt Wieters, and even Chris Davis to a certain point with the oblique injury that he had earlier in the season. Um, Buck would be quick to point out, and he said this before during FanFest, that you know, uh, getting guys like that back at full health for the season would be like signing two free agents. So getting Matt Wieters and Manny Machado back for an entire full season is going to be huge for this team. You're putting players down there that are going to have the potential to have three-plus war seasons, you're not going to be able to go out there and sign someone for the amount of money that you're going to be paying them in one or two years. So um, getting Matt Wieters and Manny Machado back is going to be great. But at the same point, you're left with that question mark in the back of your head of if Manny, Matt Wieters and Manny Machado were on this team and at the ALCS, would the same thing have happened? I have a hard time saying no. But again, baseball is all about what-ifs. I don't think we can be about what-ifs. We got there without those guys, and... Um, well, we died by them not having them on the team as well. Yeah, one of the things, and I don't know how you guys feel about this, but when you look at the end of a, a lineup that ends with uh, Ryan Flaherty, Jonathan Scope, and either Nick Hundley or Caleb Joseph, who was struggling mightily at the end yeah. of that season, to have a guy like Matt Wieters in that lineup, I think that makes a huge difference. And and, and I'm not going to say... Also that, not to have Steve Pearson the number five hole, too. Absolutely. I, I he was think, pressing very heavily during that ALCS. I think that anybody who says that, that those guys weren't desperately missed in the series that ended up being our undoing is, is just missing what had been Orioles baseball there for. Now, Scotty, we usually do this in a, in a very serious fashion. I, I give my ugly, and then you start ranting and raving, and I never know what you're going to say. Uh, do you want to let our, our guest go first so that you have the ability to go last? Because I, I, I know that this is usually the best thing for the show. Yes. Zach, what do you got for ugly for 2014? Four letters, man. A-L-C-S. Just ugly. Ugly all around. Depressing. I still get sad thinking about it after after how optimistic I was with the Orioles sweeping the Tigers in the division series. So much ugly there. It just looked like uh, a completely different team, totally worn out by a team that that I thought they really could have beat. So A-L-C-S. Ugly. I, I can't argue. That was a pretty desperate moment, so, yeah. All right, my ugly for this season, actually, Zach, yeah, echoes your, your bad <laughs> for this year, and that is Chris Davis of 2014. And, and here's the thing. There is no way that he could have delivered 
there's no way he could have possibly delivered on the expectations that he set from his historic 2013. Mm-hmm. When I say historic, I mean he was a legitimate MVP candidate with over 130 RBI and 53 home runs. He was, he was a beast. But he didn't even come close. Davis swung through pitches that he would have crushed a year prior, and though he took his fair share of walks, his strikeouts were off the charts. Yeah. The most frustrating thing about Chris Davis is that the, the defensive shift completely silenced him. He, there was no way that he could adjust to a point where he could beat the shift. And, and we've talked about this ad nauseum on the show, whether or not it's ego of the players that refuse to stop pulling the ball or whether it's just an ability situation. Chris Davis was effectively silenced by the shift. But, you know, a failed season would have been one thing. But here's the thing that capped off Davis's 2014 season. That's this. The 25-game amphetamine suspension. You know, for all of his defiance over the steroid talk, Davis could not have made a more serious mistake. And he couldn't have made a mistake on, on two fronts. The first is that his absence, as we've just discussed, was felt so vividly during the, during the playoffs. You know, Chris Davis, yes, had a very terrible 2014 season, but even in his diminished role, Chris Davis in the seven hole or the eight hole is a threat in a lineup that you have to pay attention to as an opposing pitcher in a way that you do not have to pay the attention to Ryan Flaherty. Uh, Chris Davis's presence not only meant that Ryan Flaherty was there, but also meant that Jonathan Scope, who was a negative ad, offensively was there in the lineup in the starting lineup but one of the things i think that is most disappointing is the fact that as a fan you know we have to connect to chris davis a guy that we we chose to believe in in 2013 a guy who defiantly said no i am not using performance enhancing drugs and got hit on a amphetamine suspension you know scott you and i are parents and we're parents of children who are just now at the point where they're starting to recognize the worship of of players, of Major League Baseball players. And being sent to school in Chris Davis outfits. <laughs> and, and there gets to be a point where not only are you disappointed for yourself, but you're disappointed in the fact that your kids look up to Chris Davis. Your kids look up to the hero Chris Davis, to the, the caricature, to the cartoon character that's Chris Davis. And the reality that they're dealt with instead is a very difficult conversation to have to have with my four-year-old. I don't know about yours. But for she people... She likes Machado, so... <laughs> for people like you and I that I think, you know, probably went to bat for Chris Davis in 2013, the way that his t- 2014 ended was incredibly disappointing. And, and for me, that was as ugly as it gets. And so this is me stepping off the soapbox. Scott Magnus, our last real good, bad, and the ugly for 2014... This is all you, buddy. Let's hear it. Turn down for what? <clears throat> um, all right, my ugly is going to have to go to leaving, going back to what Zach said with the ALCS and losing it. A lot of people came out of that ALCS and said, we missed our opportunity. That was our chance to get to the World Series. There is no chance in the world for us to come back again and get that close again. It's all over. We might as well start rebuilding at this moment. And those Orioles fans that feel that way, they're ugly. If you cannot look at this team right now and see the plethora of talent that is on this team, it's probably the most talented team. If you look at it compared to 2012, it is much more talented. Take a look at Kevin Gossman. Kevin Gossman last year is looking like a top-of-the-rotation starter. 
The only issue I see with him right now is not being able to go deep into games. Once he is able to get a feel for his off-speed pitches and get deeper into games, and I'm not talking a lot, I'm talking another inning or two innings, Kevin Gossman is going to be a number one or number two starter right there with, you know, Chris Tillman. Um, I also want to come back to a person that I constantly gave flack to this season, and that's Jonathan Scope. Jonathan Scope has that home run potential and power. If he can... He can't get worse. No, he can get worse. But, again, if he can learn to have a little bit more plate discipline and he can learn how to not swing like he did this year, similar to what Adam Jones did in his 2010 season, then he's going to be a great, great second baseman. He might be a top-five second baseman in all of Major League Baseball. I mean, that is unbelievable. I mean... And again, I'm going to come back to, you've got people coming up from the minor leagues like Bundy as well. You've got, you know, uh, Alvarez having the possibility of coming up next year as well. Jake, I'm going to tell you this right now. David Lowe is going to be a major contributor for this team in 2015. Stop it. I'm telling you right now. (laughs) Stop it. David Lowe could be a major contributor. Look, the Orioles could go out and lose Nelson Cruz. It could happen. It's probably going to happen. Could the Dave, could the Orioles go out and lose David Lowe? No, they can't because no. he's he's a very good player. I'm sorry. I'm gonna I've turned my change my team. I think David Lowe is a very good player defensively. But Jake, the future is bright for this team, and there's no way in the world that you can look at this team and say this was our last chance to get to the World Series. The Orioles have just as good of a chance this year as they did next year and in future years as well. As long as Adam Jones is on this team and is the leader of this team, and you've got an arsenal of young pitching. This team is going to be in great shape. So for those Orioles fans out there that say we blew our chance, you, sir, are ugly. You know, Scott, I like to argue with you. I like to tell you you're wrong. But in this instance, I have to let your wife down. You are not wrong. She can tell me that later. Here's the thing. We talked about it in the past. The Orioles have enough pieces to go on. They have some holes to fill, but the offseason is long. You heard Greg Bader. They're hard at work. He, he, the tip of his tongue was ready to go with an announcement. I, I can feel it. But beyond he that, he always says that. I know, yeah. I, and, and I always say that. Yeah. But beyond that, you know, the Get Orioles comfortable. That's what I'm gonna tell you. The Orioles' nucleus is to the point where the, they only have to add a little bit to continue to stay in contention. And as Buck says, they just need to roll that dice in October. And I feel fully confident that the Orioles will be rolling that dice. And uh, you know, it's a weird spot to be in, uh, Zach, to, to be in a spot where you feel like the Orioles are going to be relevant next year in October after having so much practice and, and basically not. Yeah, and, and I think to add to that, too, and to add to, to Scott's ugly there in, in the pan, the fans that were really unpatient with uh, impatient with this team is just the fact that I, I think about where we were at this point last year and really into January and February and criticizing the lack of moves that yep. uh, Dan Duquette and, and the front office was making. And, you know, I know we laughed about Delman Young, but of course Delman Young had one of the biggest hits of the season. And, you know, we may the be in a, a similar situation this offseason where, you know, what could be the biggest move? Well, they, they might lose Cruz, like yep. you said, but they're also getting back Davis and Machado and Weeders, not Davis on opening day, but, uh, but after so, so we may be in a similar situation and those fans that were impatient with the ball club, the ones that were saying that, uh, you know, that they'll never get back to, uh, where they were this season, maybe the ones talking about how terrible this off season has been. But I, I really think, like you guys said, 
it's a club that's really close and a club that the pieces that they're going to get back are really going to contribute for them in 2015. So I'm, I'm optimistic about it too. Totally optimistic. So Jake, this is when we normally go ahead and we close out our show with blowing the save. Now, blowing the save is where we, we end on the lowest note as possible, correct? <laughs> that, that, that is correct. But Jake, this is, uh, we're going to do something a little bit different today. Today is not the day. Today, we're going to rock. So uh, we're going to change things up a little bit today. So, Jake, uh, we have somehow and some way come together over 100 times now, bogged down through the hisses and the hums and the buzzes through the Internet and to our audience. And during that time, we've some of the, seen the best Orioles teams that we've ever seen in our lives. Confidence, you know, is really high. And is it a coincidence that uh, ever since we started the show, the Orioles have been doing pretty darn well? I think they do take their uh, their cues from us. Well, let's not eliminate the variable from the equation. We're going to keep doing this and make sure the Orioles are constantly winning every single year. But we got a plethora of folks to thank in Birdland. But it all starts with our lovely and supportive wife. Um, they are the ones that have to constantly hear and drone us on, even when they are drunk. And, um, you know, for hours upon hours, we're, you know, talking each other about boring things that they can't stand. And we're also singing as well. So, um we appreciate them getting through this idiocy that we put up with and um, our fascination with a boys' hobby. So thank you, Carrie. Thank you, Sarah. You've our eternal thanks for putting up with us. We love you very much. Um, we'd also like to go out and thank out the Birdland Blogosphere and Social Group, who has transformed the way we interact with people. Zach Wilt from Baltimore Sports Report for forming the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Our sister wife podcast, including Sam Dingman and Alan Smith from the Baltimoreans, as well as the somewhat defunct spastics, including Charlie Hops and Dean Islake. And Chris Knightsey. And Chris Knightsey. And those other guest bloggers uh, that do Orioles blogs out there, such as Derek Arnold from uh, Utah Street Report, Matt and Josh Roca and Burt Rohde at Section 336, John Wilkes and Dylan Atkinson at Orioles Uncensored, and a special shout-out over to the OBP Apparel Boys, Cal Renner, Joe Pa, and Sal, for continuing to work with us on our awesome t-shirt design, on their awesome t-shirt designs and creators of our awesome logo. So I recommend everyone go over to obpapparel.com and purchase one of their shirts to thank them for all their work. And uh, closing now, Jake, I think we have to go out and thank our fans and the ones that constantly turn out every single week to uh, listen to the drivel that we put out from our basement as we drink. And so, it is drivel. Yes. So, And especially thank you to the super fans out there such as... Uh, Jonathan Shefernak, who is Oriole Sunglass Guy, Neil Morehouse, who's Carne Cabeza, and Romeo Santos, who really goes without introduction as truly the Oriole superfan in Baltimore. Um, and honestly, Jake, with that, I think I've gone ahead and completed this save and not blown it, and we can call it close to 2014 and move forward to 2015. Hey, once every 100 episodes, you have to come up with a clean inning, and I appreciate that. So... Uh... I guess at this point, Scott, there's really nothing left for me to say other than adieu, adieu. Good night, Baltimore.